Would you like to hear from a marketing expert who's been responsible for sending more than 200 million emails, who works with people like Tony Robbins and the world's best-known authors, speakers, and thought leaders, who understands the digital content funnel better than most and knows how to create hooks, lead magnets, buyer journeys, and every other little detail associated with email marketing success? If so, Michelle Falzon is the guest you've been waiting for. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert, and this is the podcast for copywriters looking for expert advice on how they can become better copywriters. If you'd like to take a deep dive into the world of copywriting, check out our copyclub.com.au and discover the practical tips and hints you need to upskill yourself as a professional copywriter. Oh, and by the way, if you like this podcast, please help us spread the word and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Michelle Falzon, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's so great to be here. Now, Michelle, you come highly regarded. Um, lots of people I know know you, but I don't. So I'm actually really excited to be talking to you today because I've heard your name mentioned for years. So maybe just tell us what do you currently do and what were the steps leading up to where you are today? Oh, okay. So I uh, am a strategic content marketer. And that's a term that I've, it may be out there in the world, but it's a term I feel I've definitely had to coin for the work that I do because I provide strategic content for thought leaders, particularly speakers, authors, uh, people with intellectual property who usually provide things like uh, books, courses, programs, high-level coaching programs and things like that to large communities of people. And I help them really think through their content, not just, I think there's a real separation between, um, you know, people think I'm going to create a course and then they think, how am I going to sell this course? Whereas what I work with people to do is I get them to think holistically and strategically about their content. And we really figure out what is the right course to create even and how to package and position that course and then build an entire kind of marketing system around that course. And then not to see that course in isolation, but to see where are we going to move people from beyond that course to the high level coaching program or wherever else it might need to go. And really thinking about building those programs with those next steps in mind from the free you know, piece of content that somebody might see on a social media platform, like a lead magnet or a video or an excerpt from a live event, all the way through to them buying, you know, a $50,000 coaching program. Fantastic. And tell me, how did you come to this role? Obviously, many divergent paths and, and paths less, less traveled than most. But maybe just talk us through your early career, because I know you started in the 90s when it was kind of an analog, a bit like me as well, and, and what mm. that was like and this transition into this incredibly digital era that we live in. So maybe just talk us through the, the milestones in your career. Yeah, so obviously I started when I was five years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, so in the, actually I started in the 80s, uh, the very late 80s in the film industry. I had a real passion for, I've always had a passion for communicating and telling stories. And so for me, uh, I came back from uh, being living overseas in the US and I got a role working with a film production company. That was in the late 80s. We made documentary films all over the world and it was wonderful. I absolutely loved it. And around that time, the government changed the tax laws that were supporting film production in Australia. There was an old tax law called 10BA. 
that went away. And so a lot of people in the film industry found themselves with these very expensive, giant editing suites. You know, we used to have these big editing suites. Everything was done on film or tape and um, they were very expensive to operate. And so the pivot for this film production company was to take on a lot more um, agency work. So they became like an advertising agency as well. And so I sort of stepped into producing television commercials and radio commercials and print campaigns. And, um, you know, we do a lot of below the line stuff, corporate advertising, like corporate videos and things like that. And that was a fantastic grounding in all the all the things, you know. So I did print and we did big print campaigns. Uh, we did um, radio television ads and I had to learn to produce things fast uh, but good fast but good uh, and from there I when things started to move online it was like are you kidding me we can like make a video put it online without having to go through this I knew the giant process we used to have to go through and so I jumped on top of uh, kind of the the internet revolution uh, creating you know websites and email campaigns very very early um, and then I moved into, uh, I, I kind of had this fusion of direct response, a, a direct response background, also my writing background that I had. And so, and also there weren't many people doing it. So I guess I was lucky and I got to work with a lot of really interesting businesses, uh, doing email marketing. And then I moved into specifically one of the big businesses that really embraced email marketing early. One of the, the industries was events, because you can imagine these event companies, they had, you know, 100,000 people on their list. And every time they wanted to tell them about this new speaker that was coming out from the US or wherever, they had to make a letter and put a stamp on it. And so for them, email was like a gift from the gods. And so I had a lot of big event companies as my clients. So I began, you know, doing campaigns, promoting, you know, really well-known um, speakers and authors and people like that and got a bit of a name in that space. And that eventually led to me um, having uh, taking on the CEO role of an event-based business, being a marketing director of another really large event-based business in Australia. And they were just heavily campaign driven. So we were always doing new campaigns for the new speakers that were coming out and the new events, finding new hooks, new angles. And the interesting thing that happened was it used to be you could send out an email. Everybody got that email. Everybody opened that email. And if you were promoting a free event, people loved free events and they came to free events. If you had 100 people sign up for an event, 99 of them would turn up. And then over time, that email rate, open rates dropped. The uh, enthusiasm for free events kind of dropped or the competition went up. Both of those things probably happened at the same time. So it was a real golden age around 2003 and 2005 where you could just send out an email and magic would happen. Uh, then it got a little harder. And so that was when we started doing content marketing before it was really a thing, before it was called content marketing. So we started to realize we had to do more for our audience in terms of giving them more information on the speaker and sharing free videos from the speakers and getting them engaged before they'd want to click through and register for something. And that's where I fell in love with this hybrid between marketing and uh, sort of direct response and then content marketing and telling a story and adding value. And so that uh, became my, um, my area of interest, my passion, this what I call strategic content marketing. And so for the last nearly 10 years, I've been a consultant in that space and working with um, some, you know, well-known, very well-known international 
uh, and Australian uh, speakers, authors, uh, coaches, um, people with big uh, kind of brands and things like that. That's a fantastic potted history. I feel like I'm talking to my twin. You know, it's <laughs> a very similar background to mine as well, you know, sort of film, yeah. TV, advertising, the old hands, you know, stuffing envelopes, sticking it on, you know, stamp on, getting the lists, all the dupes, you know, that really old-fashioned stuff. But maybe just talk us through some of the names you have worked with because I think that could be quite, if you can name some of the names or are they a bit private? Oh, a lot of them are, are a little private. So I have got NDAs with a lot of my clients only because I do get so um, kind of involved in their businesses and actually, uh, you know, uh, I tend to work with fewer people in a very deep way because once I get into their business, it's about really thinking through the entire strategy and structure. Um, but obviously, you know, over the years, we've promoted people like uh, Tony Robbins. Um, we've I've worked very closely with Ryan Levesque, who uh, is uh, the head of the Ask Method company, and we've done a lot of work together. Um, there are a lot of the old names from uh, the, the eras, um, uh, yeah, it's, I, I am mostly bound by NDAs with a lot of people fine. that I work with. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, so let's talk about content marketing because I completely get what you're saying. I remember there was a time exactly where you would have a letter and it would go out to the recipient and then it might be followed up with a telemarketing call and the, day, the deal was done. They'd go and buy the product. Yeah. And now you've got this thing going out via any number of mediums and there's a whole bunch of content in between that the consumer has to consume before they buy and in some respects, it's very expensive for the company to create all that content because they're annoyed because I think, what about the old days when mm. you just put the radio on and add TV, 60 Minutes, Women's Weekly, you know, and it gets bought. Now this is a bunch of stuff in the middle that has to be created, which is expensive, but it's good for us. So just talk to me about your definition of content marketing versus, say, copywriting. Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, to me, uh, people will say to me, um, you know, can you just write this piece of copy? And I, my answer will almost always be no, because I tend not to see copy uh, being effective in isolation, just to write one email or one, um, you know, page for a website or whatever it might be. I really think copy is the most effective when it is part of a strategic kind of point of view. Now, I know there's a lot of copywriters out there who are making their bread and butter doing exactly that. And I think there's a real market for that. Um, but because I guess I've positioned myself as a strategic content marketer, for me, it's about that's where I've positioned myself. So I will generally um, see copywriting as writing specifically uh, copy that is to sell something. So, for example, if I'm writing an email sequence, if I'm writing a, um, uh, something for a web page, if I'm writing a brochure, if I'm writing something like that, and it's often copied to, um, it, it's, the, it's the, the pointy end of the stick, if you like, in terms of the content. But obviously, content marketing is a lot more than that. It's the, as you said, all that stuff in the middle. It's the video. Uh, it's the um, sequence of um, client stories that might get shared weeks, even months before the launch happens and people start to see more of your marketing copy. So um, to me, that's the difference between content marketing and copy. Copy is very much sort of specific to a specific purpose and uh, really about the advertising and the kind of front end sort of sales side of the equation. 
And there is so much more to the equation now in terms of the content, the information, the words that your audience needs to see and hear uh, than um, specifically the copy. So if, if a student was listening or copywriting a novice or someone who's even a bit more experienced and would really like to transition from being that um, one-off copywriter, you know, the email here, the blog there, and would like to move more into your space. <laughs> I'm sure you're very confident you don't need to worry about people encroaching on your space. <laughs> but what would you, what advice or tips would you give them on how they can reposition themselves or how do they need to think differently in order to be a strategic content marketer, not just a copywriter? Mm. Yeah, I think we've all uh, we've all got to do what we've got to do in terms of, you know, paying the bills and making sure we're looking after things. And so there'll be projects that come along that, you know, you might need to take for that purpose. But where there's opportunity uh, to say no or um, I'll work on this project if, for example, I'll work on this project if I can also be involved in the kind of conception of the product or if I can be involved in the whole funnel or something like that, I always encourage you to do that. Um and for me, it really was about saying no to a whole bunch of stuff and yes to what I really wanted and educating my clients. So oftentimes when I would be approached to do, like I said, just a straight out kind of copy, can you write a four email sequence for something or can you do this or that? My answer would be no, because I need to be more around the strategy. Um, but if you would like me to help you with the entire strategy, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, and then sometimes they'd say, well, no, we're good. Or actually, yeah, that would be great. How would that work? And so then you need to have an answer for the question of how would that work? And it's okay if you just kind of like off the cuff, if you're winging it a little bit. Um, but one of the things I would suggest is to get onto a strategy call with them. And so in the early days, I would offer those strategy calls as um, an exploratory call. Look, let's just get on the phone now. I'm happy to give you an hour of my time just to look at the project, look at what's involved. Uh, and give you a bit of an insight and also see if it's something that I can contribute to. And then you're really coming at the project kind of as a peer to the person that you're working with rather than, you know, um, somebody that's that's a gun for hire to work on a very specific slice of the project. Excellent. So let's just talk about maybe email um, because I know you've sent probably 100 million plus emails. Is that an accurate figure? Yeah, and in fact, I think it's probably more like, you know, 200 million now um, because, you know, I've been doing this a long time <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you have, when you're working with clients or you have uh, businesses with big lists, it doesn't take long for those, uh, you know, millions of emails to stack up. So, yeah, email, what would you like to talk about? Well, I know email is a, a really interesting topic because on some on one hand, people say email is dead, you know, or it's dying, and other people say it, you couldn't be more wrong. So, what's mm. your position on email's future? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard email is dead. I don't know for about fifteen years, email is dead. It seems to still be doing fine. Uh, email isn't dead. I think um, if email was if email was a person. Email's not dead. Email's just got a little more picky. Email's just got a little more demanding. Uh, email's just got a little bit more selective. And uh, when done well, email's still as effective as email ever was. So uh, I don't know any business that I work with, uh, some of these really bigger businesses that are turning over, you know, millions of dollars a year through marketing. Um, you know, a lot of that is done still from their email lists. I mean, if you took away their email lists, I think that would be 
uh, you know, possibly worse for these businesses than if they couldn't do Facebook ads. So it's um, definitely very much alive. We definitely still very much when we're writing our copy, when we're thinking about our strategic campaigns, wanting to get that email address through various ways, uh, you know, through giving people content that they want to opt in for, for getting them to take part in challenges or any of those other things that you're doing on the front end of your marketing. Um, because once you have that address, now that is, that's a list you, that's a, that's um, part of your own channels. So you can reach those people whenever you want um, however you want, with whatever message you want, and you're not restricted, say, going through Facebook. And that's relevant too if anybody listening has clients uh, in spaces that Facebook is determining not suitable for advertising on Facebook. So you want to very quickly, um, you know, you can be putting ads out on Facebook, promoting content that gets people opting in, that's sort of jumping through Facebook's hoops. Now they're on your list, you can start to communicate them with them more fully and more authentically about the things that you might want to talk about. So you might have a client who's a sex therapist, or you might have a, a client who sells, um, uh, you know, multivitamins, or, you know, a client who's a, even people like fertility specialists. There's all sorts of niches that are having trouble advertising on Facebook. And so what we want to do is quickly get that email address so we can then communicate with them through our email marketing. Great. Michelle, some of the people listening might not have the, you know, millions on the database, but they might have, you know, 10, 20,000. I'll give an example just in my own world. Just recently, I had a client wanting to send out an email campaign just to 10,000 people. Now, the list was not, it was kind of a cold list, a cold call. They actually mm. got the list from another business. So they knew that it wasn't, whatever was going to be sent to these people had to be kind of compelling because they weren't asking for it. And also it was not segmented in any way, shape or form. Mm. Now this happens a lot. And, and I get students asking me, well, how do we write copy for like a large number of people if we don't know who's on it? And they genuinely don't know who's on it other than they did business with this particular business. You know, so mm. I, I won't say what it is, but what, what yeah. is your strategy for students or anyone listening who has to write copy where the client truly doesn't know who's on the list, but they want to send something out because they want to create awareness of their new product? Yeah. Well, that would be one of those points where I would assert my strategic no. So I would never send an email to a list. Well, firstly, it sounds like that list was acquired through another business, and I'm not quite sure of the detail of that, but obviously we can only market to people who've opted in for our own list. So if that was, say, company A's list and they just gave it to company B, um, or they sort of uh, said, here's a bunch of names, go and email to them. You're actually contravening um, a lot of the, depending on what country you're listening from, you are likely contravening a spam law in your particular region. So you always want to make sure the provenance of the list. So these people that you communicate need to be people you, that you are communicating with on your email list or on your client's email list need to be people who've opted in to receive information from that client. So they've bought from that client, they've uh, opted in for a lead magnet from that client, they visited that client's website and, you know, signed up for the for the $30 off coupon, whatever it might be, um, those people are on that list specifically. So that's the first thing that would be a hard no for me. I would, that would be a big no. The second no for me would be, okay, um, we don't know who these people are. We cannot write a message that's going to land on these people's hearts and minds. So for me, the very first thing I would be, so let's just say that the list was um, 
from a particular client, people, people had opted in in a legit way. Um, the very first thing I would be doing is sending some kind of survey to that audience. And so um, the very best person is somebody I just mentioned earlier, Ryan Levesque, has a process called the ask method. And he has a, um, a particular type of survey called a deep dive survey. And it can be as simple as one question. You can ask additional questions, but there's one question you always want to ask. And he calls it the single most important question, the SMIQ. And that question is asking people not to tell you what they want because people can't tell you what they want. It's really asking you to tell people what, but people can tell you all day what they don't want. So this question is asking uh, people to tell you what their challenges are. So let's just say the fertility example that I mentioned earlier, if this particular client has had people opt in um, because they're interested in fertility, then uh, you could send a survey to that audience if they don't know who they are um, and say, when it comes to fertility, what's your single biggest challenge? Please be as detailed as possible and leave an open-ended answer. Now, that open-ended answer is where your clients, where your people on your list will give you the gold. I think one of the greatest myths as copywriters, as content creators, is that we feel like we have these magical unicorns who can magic stuff up out of our own brains that will somehow magically arrive and influence other people. But we, the best copywriters that I know, the best content creators that I know are constantly mining their audience's language. They're constantly making what Frank Luntz calls the imaginative leap right into somebody else's shoes. And that's not just talk. That's not just theory. That is actually what needs to happen. You need to really morph yourself into the person you're wanting to speak to. And if you can't do that, then for me, it's a hard no, or it's a, hey, how can we figure out how to get this information if you don't already have it? So in terms of students who might be um, starting out with a client and what, what tips have you got for maybe client relationships, you know, how to have that confidence to ask those questions? Because I know if um, a client can sometimes push back or they, they perceive the copywriter to not have the authority to, to ask that. Any tips mm. on how people can, you know, embrace their, their power and actually ask for what they need in order to do a better job? Mm. And look, I think that's a very real issue. A lot of people just want to want transactional content. They just want, I'll give you the brief. I'll tell you what I know. You'll write your seven emails. I'll pay you. And that will be that. And I, I definitely think there's a place for that for a copywriter that's getting started, but you very quickly want to move in my, my opinion, you very quickly want to move into um, territory where you're able to work with clients who are open to this. And for me, it's always hard to uh, say no. I hate saying no. I like, you know, I've come from a background of being a real people pleaser. And so I, what I've learned to do though, is to channel that because I want the best result for my client. And so I really stand on that solid ground, which is, Hey, I really want to do a great job for you. I really want this to work. And in my professional opinion, and I have used that phrase many times when I really need to, when I need to pull it out of the bag. It's a mistake to proceed sending this email when you don't know who's on your list. And if you'd like to do that, go ahead. It's just not a campaign I'll be able to work on for you. Uh, now, I know we've all got to pay the bills. And so sometimes you just, 
you might just need to do that job because it's what the job you need to do or it's a client you want to work with so you can stepping stone to something else. So I don't mean to be high and mighty, but if you are wanting to kind of move into a more strategic direction, you need to play that card. Oftentimes the thing you're thinking in your head is the thing you need to be saying out loud. (laughs) Too many times we have this whole inner dialogue going on and we don't share it with the client. And I just want to encourage you to be bold because the more I have done that in my life, the better the outcome has been, the more respect I've gained, the more I've been paid, the better clients I've got to work with, the more I've enjoyed it, the more I've got out of it. And it becomes this very virtuous cycle because at some point you have to realize you know what you're doing. Like, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. There, I've said it out loud. I usually say more than 25 years just to, you know, keep people guessing but I've been doing this for more than 30 years there is some stuff I know and so I've just got to you know lean into that now you might say hey well great you've been doing it for 30 years it's easy for you but even if you've been doing this for a year for three years there are things you know and you've got to back yourself if you if you're not going to back yourself who is going to back you who what client is going to put their big campaign on your shoulders so sometimes a little bit of boldness a little bit of pushing back uh, and, you know, realising, yeah, you've got the goods. Great answer. I get this question a lot too, Michelle, it's about email, that you've got one database, they don't want to segment it because they don't, they can't for whatever reason, oh. <laughs> and they want to send the one email to everybody. And yeah. What are your techniques or what, what advice would you give to people who, who you have to do that? You know, you've got one email mm-hmm. and it's got to go to many different audiences. Any any tips mm-hmm. on how you can segment that or whatever you do? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things that come to mind there. First, I'd still want to put the survey into the mix so that I got some language that I started to understand some thematic buckets. So for example, I'll go back to that fertility example at the beginning. Um, if I sent that deep dive survey out and I got those open-ended responses about what their big challenges were, I would be able to see what the big themes were and the kinds of groups of people that might be on this list. So even though the the actual database is not segmented, I can segment the message. I can start to understand what are the objections, where are the big pain points, what do people really want? And then I can really use that to then create an email sequence or create a campaign that's touching on all of those. So for example, let's say you're sending an eight email sequence to somebody So you might send out your first email and it's to everybody. So you might really address the theme that you know most people have. But then in the rest of the sequence, and and I do encourage you to think about the sequence as a whole before you send it. So that's like an absolute must. Oftentimes we get stuck with a deadline and we send like, we write the first email and it goes out and then we're kind of just in timing it on the rest of the sequence. You definitely want to think of that sequence in its entirety. So then as you're planning it out, you might think, okay, we're going to, come up with an email. Email two might address this particular issue that I've seen. Email three might address that particular issue. And email four might um, attack this particular objection. And so you really kind of segment the message, even though your audience can't be segmented. The other technique, which is uh, a good one, is if you've got, if you realize from these responses, these survey responses, I've really got three types of people here. I've got uh, people who are thinking about um, getting pregnant and they don't even know if, they're, if they've got fertility issues. I've got people who have got fertility issues and are maybe going through IVF right now. And I've got people who've had a baby and are thinking about having another one. 
So if that's the case and you realize they're my three buckets, then what you would do is in an email, even your announcement email or your announcement message, you could say, hey, we've got this new program coming or this new event or new product, whatever it might be. Um, and this is ideal for you if you're just wondering if you've, if you've got uh, a fertility issue and you're thinking about starting a family and you want to know X, Y, Z. Or if you are presently struggling with fertility and you're going through IVF right now, this is going to be something you absolutely want to read. And if you've had a baby and you are now thinking about starting a, having another baby and you're concerned about your fertility, this is going to be good for you because. So you're kind of pulling your segments out in your messaging and speaking to them directly in that communication. And then you might decide, and it depends on what the what the campaign is, if you've got enough wiggle room and enough time, you might do an email dedicated just to people who are struggling with IVF. And you might do an email just to people struggling, um, you know, with having had a baby and now not being able to get pregnant again or whatever it might be. And coming at it from these many different angles, I think uh, can help you to get that specificity that you need and to be able to use that emotive language that you can use when you know what the specific challenge is that you're dealing with even though the list isn't segmented. Great answer. Now, I have a couple of challenges to that because I, I also get asked these questions. If you're doing a sequential emailer and you're not sure if people have read the, the first one, um, mm. do you need to tailor it for the second one? I mean, if you've got Infusionsoft and all those kinds of really fancy pants software, you can work out who's read what. But, you know, on a, on a basic level, what do you do when you can't be, um, you can't assume that somebody's already read email one, do you need to reference it in email two or can you treat email two as if they've already done that? Mm, good question. So uh, I, I never presume that, uh, you know, email is such a random thing. You know, I said she's getting more and more fussy, this email character. And people, you don't, it's nonlinear. Somebody might read email two before they read email one. They might only receive the first email. They might not receive the first email and only read the third. They might open one but not read it. You know, they might glance at three subject lines and then finally open the fourth email. So I tend to think about the email uh, as a nonlinear thing. And I typically like my announcements to be um, like, hurrah, it's here. Uh, and then I tend to come at it from multiple angles, but I'm always thinking about the person that this is the first time that they've read this message. So if I'm promoting an event, for example, uh, I'll have, um, you know, the announcement, here comes the event. And then the next email might be about a specific uh, aspect of that event or addressing a specific objection or telling a specific client story, but I'm not presuming anybody read the announcement email. So then I'm restating the call to action. I'm restating what the event is and, um, you know, one or two bullets about why they might need to attend, for example. Fantastic. Fantastic, Michelle. Um, I, some really specific questions because it's lovely to have an email marketing expert on the call. Things like I often get asked, do I use the um, plain text you know, sending out an email just plain or do I use the um, hyper, you know, the pictures and download pictures, et cetera, with all the lovely formatting? What are your thoughts mm. about that? Yes. Um, see earlier point about email getting more and more picky. Uh, I would definitely suggest uh, some testing if you have the opportunity to test. I know from various tests that I've done with clients, uh, we have found one image is about the most you want to put in an email. 
So, uh, you know, a lot of people send out these very image rich emails and newsletters, you know, with like 50 links in them to different pages and 17 different images. Uh, they tend to be more and more problematic. I'm going for more and more plainer emails um, with one image and one um, one place that I'm sending people to off the image, maybe with, say, two links, maybe possibly a third link. Um, and when I'm in links, I mean, they're all going to the same place, but then it might be in the email three times. For example, I might put it in the opening paragraph, something just before the sign-off and in a PS. Uh, but if you're sending lots and lots of links, lots and lots of images, um, yeah, you're starting to potentially hit some problems. And in terms of length, I often get asked this question too, you know, how long? <laughs> what do you, I, I know that's really hard, but I just love your thoughts on it. Mm. Yeah, an email uh, is only too long as soon as your clients start tuning out uh, and it's only too short if your clients didn't get the information they needed. You know, there's there's that classic, um, you know, is it the nine-word email? I always get mixed up whether it's eight or nine words. Um, the Dean Jackson nine-word email. So, uh, you know, Bernadette, are you still interested in buying a new home? That email, you know, hit reply and let me know. That email will get you, um, you know, potentially way more responses than writing a giant long message about why they you need to buy a new home and where the good new homes are right now, et cetera. Simultaneously, a long, passionate email that is completely written in your client's voice, that is absolutely spot on in terms of the pain point that people are experiencing, the objections, it's like you're in my head. Those people are just going to keep reading. They will just keep reading. Um, I think a lot of it is about what's well, about so many things. It's about um, the vibe of the person that you are writing for, or if it's for yourself, your own vibe. So I think about Seth Godin, he has created a um, persona that drops knowledge bombs in three paragraphs or less. And so uh, that is what he has crafted. But there are other writers and other personalities who write long, passionate messages that their audience absolutely loves uh, that go into detail. And so it's about also finding your groove or finding the person that your writing's for or the brand that your writing's for is groove around what these emails look like. And, you know, topic, subject matter makes such a big difference. Um as well. So there's many factors, I think. Um, I always come back to testing and you don't have to get all like complicated with the testing. It's like segmentation. I think people get hung up on segmentation, whereas it's like, oh, look, this list isn't segmented. It doesn't matter. Let's just do a survey, figure out our own segmentation and send. It's the same with testing. You don't have to have, you know, 50 different emails and test 30,000 different variables. Just and you don't even have to have the software that does it. You can just split your list in randomly into two lists and send list A, version one of the email, and list B, version two of the email, and just monitor your open rates, your click-through rates. What I would say about that is that open rates aren't necessarily an indicator that you've written a good email. Open rates are an indicator that you've written a sexy subject line. Um, and click-through rates aren't an indicator that you've written a good email. They're an indicator that you've written an email. People want to see what see more of what you're ask you're you're talking about. The indicator of a good email, if your objective is ultimately to get people to take action, is the conversion rate. 
So when you're doing your split test, you want to look at, okay, look, this email got, you know, twice the open rate of this one, but ultimately resulted in half the sales. I know, I know which email I'd prefer. I'd prefer the one that maybe got less opens, but was specific and that had people um, wanting to click through with buyer's intent. And there's a, there's a saying that I say over and over again uh, to my clients, to my students, to anybody that will listen to me basically, uh, and that is no content without conversion. And that doesn't mean that every single piece of content you put out is asking people to sign here and press hard. What it means is that every piece of content knows its job in the cycle, in the funnel, in the process that you're wanting to move people through. And you're wanting to really maximize the conversion job that that particular piece of content is doing. So even if there's no opt-in, if there's nothing to buy with that particular piece of content, you're setting up the next email or the next message or the next offer, um, which is where the conversion is going to happen. Mm, interesting. So let's just, I know it's really hard to answer this one too, but any rule of thumb or ratio for sales content and you really do want them to do something versus just genuine, entertaining, educational information? Do you mean for length? Yeah, like sometimes, you know, you hear people say like 80% useful, entertaining content and 20%, you know, sales or 20% call to action in the one email, or it might be three emails, just giving, giving, giving. And the last and the fourth email is the, the ask. Any, any thoughts mm. on those sort of strategies? Yeah. Look, I wish I had a simple answer for that. I, I, um, I don't really, it's not that I disagree with either of those. I think they can work. And I think there's about a thousand ways it can work. Uh, so, you know, if you're doing a launch, for example, like using, say, a Jeff Walker product launch formula approach, you're doing a lot of free content, a lot of giving for weeks, sometimes months before you open cart. And then during open cart, whether it's three days, five days, seven days, whatever your open cart period is, you're doing no teaching at all. You're doing no value add at all. It's all about um, conversion copy. Uh, and that, of course, works brilliantly. Um, but then there are other approaches where you are adding value the entire time and your PS is always, and if you'd like to find out other ways to work with me, here are some ways you can do that. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't subscribe to one particular point of view. I do think that it is about what are the objectives of the organisation, how much um, uh, sort of scalability do they have? How much tech, what's their tech stack like? Like what, what capabilities do they have? What are their goals? The other really important thing is uh, around this idea of volume and value. So if you have a client that has a very high value product, they very likely have, in many cases, a small list. So, you know, they might be a financial advisory and they're selling $20,000, uh, you know, um, financial annual financial packages where they get financial advice for a year. They might only have a few hundred people on their list versus somebody who might be selling, you know, a, a, a $50 T-shirt. They might have tens of thousands of people on their list. And so that also plays into the equation as well. Um, 
so it, it, I'm sorry I can't just go, hey, this is the meaning of life. It's oh, 42. Come on, Michelle. Come on. <laughs> hard there are so many factors. <laughs> there are so yes. many factors. But I do, I will say that I think a lot of people are far too backwards and coming forwards. I think people feel like they've got to do way too much tap dancing before they put the call to action in. Um, and and I I know that that you can't just ask somebody to buy. I'm the very first person that's all about creating content and adding value and really understanding the buyer journey, which is first about creating awareness, then moving people into considering you as a viable alternative before you reach that conversion point. But I do think, and I see this all the time with um, uh, people that I, I work with, like, like students and people that are just getting started, they feel like they've got to send 17 emails before they ask for the sale. And that's fine if that's the strategy that you've developed. But if you're just putting off asking for the sale, um, that is not going to get you the conversion results you're looking for. So I don't know if I answered your question there. I probably answered three other questions than the one you wanted, but it is difficult, I think, to say. It's kind of like the length question. Um, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the fact that it's 80-20, although I think that can work. I don't think that's the only way to make it work. Well, I think what you've summarised so nicely is there's options, you know, and yeah. it's not like there's a rule and you've got to do it this way. It, it's a blend of ideas. It's testing. Um, let's just talk about testing for a minute there, Michelle. Uh, for a copywriter maybe new who'd like to um, ask the client to test, what would you suggest they actually test? You know, in, hmm. is it just the one variable, the, exactly the same email, but you change one variable? Is it, you know, changing different audiences? Just talk us through the, the basics of testing. Mm. Yeah, so you really do only want to test one variable at a time so that you can understand what changed. So, uh, and oftentimes you may not be changing what's in the email. You might be changing what's on the landing page that you are sending people through to. So if you're promoting, um, say somebody's just released a new checklist and it's free to their audience, uh, you might send the same email because you want to know that people arrived on the landing page with the same frame. But on the landing page, you might be changing, uh, you know, the headline, for example, or, um, you know, replacing a video with copy only or something like that. So um, one variable at a time. The other rule of thumb is try and test as far forward in the funnel as you can first, because that's typically where the greatest leverage is. So for example, if you've got a client who's spending $5,000 a week or $5,000 a month or whatever it might be on their Facebook ads, then I'd be testing the copy and the images and all the variables on the Facebook ad at the very front of the funnel before I would be testing, you know, other elements because that's where the widest end of the funnel is. So you don't want to be playing around. And, and if you're, if you're just getting your client to come around to testing, you don't want to, you want to, demonstrate a win early. So don't be playing around down in the back end and bowels of the funnel, like on the sales page after, you know, seven steps in, play around on the front end of the funnel. And also you don't want to break things. So um, you always want to have a control. And so the control is the prevailing winner so far. So if the client already has an ad that they're really happy with, do not turn that ad off. <laughs> Put up a second ad that is going to compete with that ad. And so then if that second ad 
beats the control, it beats the previously best ad that the client had, now you have a new control. Now you know, ah, look, if we put, if we replace a stock image with a quirky photo of uh, somebody on the team looking perplexed, that, that beats the control. So now, okay, quirky images work. What other quirky images might work? Can we beat the control um, with another quirky image? Okay, well, we seem to have tapped out now on quirky images. We've got the quirkiest image that people are responding to. Now let's switch to looking at the headline or, you know, one of the others. And something, again, um, that I learned from Ryan Levesque is the idea of testing. And it, and it wasn't from Ryan Levesque originally. I just forget who to attribute the original source to. But it's um, test screams, not whispers. So test the really obvious things, test the images, test the headlines, test the subject line, test the opening paragraph in your email, test the call to action sequence, you know, the call to action uh, phrasing, test the language on the button. These are some of the big elements that are going to make a difference on a page. Don't test the third bullet or, you know, something else like that. Mm, brilliant. Maybe for people listening who aren't familiar with marketing, can you just talk us through your definition of the funnel, just so people completely understand the, the terminology that you're using? Yeah, and I actually uh, have a kind of contrarian view of the funnel. So typically speaking, the funnel is this idea of uh, uh, something that's wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. So, you know, if you had to pour petrol into your car, if you ran out of fuel, you'd pour the petrol in through a funnel wide at the top so you don't have spillage and then narrowing into a focal point. So that's the concept of a funnel. And so the wide end of the funnel, sometimes called, you know, the top of funnel, um, is where you gather your most, where you gather your leads, where people become aware of you. Uh, and a lot of people in marketing talk about this idea that, you get all these people in the top of your funnel and they just magically become sales. You know, you just do these one, two, three steps and they just magically become sales. Well, for me, I really imagine that funnel, imagine tipping it upside down. So the pointy end is at the top and the wide end is at the bottom. That's how I see a marketing funnel. And I call it a marketing mountain because to get somebody out of their daily life, like they're just walking along beside your mountain very happily worried about what they're going to eat for dinner, the bill that they have to pay, um, what how the kids are going at school, what the boss said to them at work or whatever it might be, to get them to actually stop what they're doing and then start listening to you and then not, not only that, buying from you, that actually isn't this idea of magically pouring leads in the top and letting gravity filter them down to the bottom. You're actually working against gravity. You're working against inertia. You've got to really do the work to get people's attention and then to keep their attention and then to have them feel like they're ready to buy from you. So I really turn that funnel upside down. And I think about a lot of people at the very beginning of that journey are presenting their clients or their prospective clients with 30 foot cliffs. And instead, what you want to give them is this beautiful little tiny step, these little pathways that are lit and that are easy to navigate. So beginning with, you know, value-added content, it might, be a, it might be an email, it might be a video, it might be a checklist. And then you might ask them to move on to come into your webinar or to um, go to the sale, apply for a sales conversation or to uh, come into the store or to get the coupon or whatever it might be. And you gradually move people through these steps until they reach a point where they are ready to buy. And um, there's a kind of a universal buyer journey that I think originated from McKinsey's, which is this idea that at, at the beginning, it's all about creating awareness, getting people just to know that you exist. 
and then beyond awareness. And we do that with our Facebook ads and with our email marketing and all of those things. The very next thing you want to do when somebody comes into your funnel is to move them from awareness to consideration. That's, you know, I can be aware of all kinds of things, but I'm not thinking about buying them. Like I'm aware there are Fruit Loops in the supermarket, but I'm not considering buying them. And so moving them into consideration is where you become a viable alternative, where your offer is something they think, hey, you know what, I've, I, maybe we should be thinking about doing X, Y, Z, or um, yeah, that's actually a really good idea. Or I've been thinking about doing this and I've been wondering who I should get to do this and I'm thinking you might be a good one um, for me to consider doing this. And on that consideration phase, the content that you provide in your funnel, it's at the awareness phase, it's, it's a lot of sizzle. It's a lot of hooks. It's a lot of grabbing people's attention. But you quickly want to move them into consideration where you can add more depth, add more value, demonstrate your authority, provide more social proof and customer stories. So webinars are great for that. Um, getting them to come to an event is great for that. Uh, getting them to take a demonstration or a trial. If you've got a SaaS product, like a software product, getting them to take up the free seven-day trial, moving people into that more engaged level of action with you. And then knowing the moment that it's going to be the perfect moment to ask for the sale. So on the webinar, if it's an hour long, 45 minutes in or 40 minutes in, you start your offer and moving them into the next stage. Um, if it's on the trial, what are you building into the trial so that they kind of need to upgrade to use the services? So really thinking that whole process through. And of course, the buyer journey does not end there. The funnel, a good funnel should not end there either. Um, so after conversion, there's loyalty and that's getting people to buy again. So either this to buy the same thing again, if you've got a product that people will buy over and over, like say uh, a, a, a vitamin or something like that or getting them to buy the next bigger thing. And that might be if you've got them buying a course, getting them to buy the six-week coaching program or whatever it might be. And even beyond loyalty, it's about advocacy. That's the final step in the funnel. And that is turning people into raving fans. That's giving them opportunities to refer you. That's giving them opportunities to tell their friends, share on social media and all of those things that um, create word of mouth and build buzz around a product or a brand. So, that's kind of the big picture overview of a funnel. And there are so many ways you can do that, but that essence needs to be there. And you can't be, you need to begin with the end in mind. You can't just think, I'm going to create a lead magnet and figure the rest out. You want to understand before you create the lead magnet, what do I want them to do next? And is this lead magnet setting that, setting them up for that? And when they're on that webinar or doing that demo or whatever it might be at the consideration phase, how am I constructing that so that they'll naturally want to move to conversion? Because I, I hate being icky. I hate the whole salesy, schmaltziness. I really love, though, building pathways that people love moving through and that the buying step just feels like the natural next step because we've built these beautiful pathways. Oh, well said. I can see why you're a great teacher. It's fantastic. Oh. The way you've just stepped that through <laughs> really clear. Um you know, and summarizing quite a complex topic in, in a really short space. And I mean, I could talk to you for hours, Michelle, but I know you have to go. So I just wanted to ask you just a couple of quick tips on things like software, like, for example, a small copywriting um, business just starting out. What kind of software um, for email would you recommend? Email package? Yeah. I, I want to just encourage people you don't have to have all the tech figured out. 
you know, to me, it's much better to start with a free MailChimp account where, you know, you can send your 500 messages or whatever it is and just get going than it is to worry about having to pay for expensive software. So I'll say that right out of the gate. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with tools like MailChimp uh, and they've got other plans that you can upgrade. Um, if and, and if you are at all tech phobic, don't struggle doing it yourself. There are lots of people out there who can help you who um, don't need to be expensive. You can pay on an hourly rate. You don't have to, you know, give them an arm and a leg to help you out who can set a lot of this up for you. So that would be the other thing I'd say right out of the gate. Um, of that, course. Sorry, Michelle, just those oh, people sorry, that um, you're referring to, what kind of titles would they have? Just so if people do want to go and research someone to help them, what kind of skill set are you oh, suggesting they'd be maybe they have? An, uh, maybe an automation specialist is um, something they might go by. Um, you can uh, have a look on Upwork and sites like that. There's a lot of people. So, for example, if you – and you can often search for your software names. So, for example, if you're using Entreport or Infusionsoft or MailChimp or um, you know, any of those tools, you might search for that keyword um, and find people with those skill sets. Uh, but automation specialist is often what that person will, will call themselves, uh, and you can have a look for those. And a lot of the um, software platforms now have uh, marketplaces and places you can go inside their hubs and their portals uh, where they list certified people that can support their software. So that's another good place to go. Uh, and, of course, nothing beats personal referrals from friends. So if you're part of a, a community, a part of a network, part of a Facebook group, uh, you can certainly go in there and say, you know, hey, I've, um, does anybody know a good uh, Infusionsoft uh, specialist? I need someone to set up some campaigns for me. Or, hey, I've just started using MailChimp. Does anybody know anybody who can set MailChimp up for me? I think that's wonderful because one of the things I tell my students is you have a team. You can't do this on your own. Mm. You know, if your computer breaks mm. down, you need an IT person. You need a graphic designer, yeah. you need them. You know, and when you accept that you need a team, just like you would in an organisation, things move really quickly and the little problems and hiccups uh, don't seem insurmountable because you think, well, how could I fix that? I've got no knowledge of that, but it can really bring people down and stop them from actually progressing. So I think the, the sooner we can accept that we need people in our team like those automation specialists, the, the sooner we can start doing some really interesting stuff so michelle yeah i can't thank you enough for your time you've been amazing what a wealth of information and um you're working from your beautiful regional you know i think you you represent what copywriting and content creators really want which is to live in a place where you want to live in the region that suits you your family and you just work with amazing people from all around the world i think you truly represent what the copywriting life could be so thank you for joining me it was a total pleasure thank you for having me as Mark Twain said, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. And I think we can safely say that reports of email being dead are also greatly exaggerated. I think what Michelle demonstrates so nicely is that email is well and truly alive and has a massive role to play in marketing. So I'm hoping that you were able to get some nice insights and some templates for how you can approach your marketing campaigns more effectively. I'll leave you with my tip of the day. Now, it's not for everybody, but for a lot of people, writing in the morning is when they produce their best work. And don't forget about Copy Club, a fantastic way to connect with other copywriters. Get trained, get upskilled, get access to new and exciting copywriting opportunities. I hope you can be a part of it. Visit copyclub.com.au. And my joke of the day, because I know you're waiting for it, I've only met 25 letters of the alphabet. I don't know why. I'm better at it, Thank you for listening. All the best. Take care and bye-bye.